Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. May the Lord bless you as you gather together in his name to worship him and to wait upon him for his word. We're going to continue our studies in the Gospel of John, and we go to John chapter 4, and we're reading from verse 46 to verse 54. John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. Once more Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your living word. Thank you that we're able to read it and to articulate it freely. Thank you, Father, for the freedom we have to study your word. And we pray, Father, that as we turn afresh to this passage, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit into each of our lives. Father, you know the word that we need to hear, the encouragement we need to receive, the challenge that you want to bring. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we turn looking to Jesus, looking to you, and asking you to speak, because your servants are listening. Amen. The folks in my former church in Inverness used to love organizing special times of fellowship to raise funds. We had young people that were going off to Eastern Europe, to Bulgaria and to Romania for mission during the summer. And uh, so they they loved to organize things to raise funds so that uh, they could be sent off with the blessing of God's people. And one of the favored activities uh, was to organize a car treasure hunt. We started in the church car park And then one cryptic clue would lead you on to the next and you'd go all over the beautiful Inverness countryside until finally you arrived at the treasure at the end of the hunt. Uh, That's assuming you didn't get lost somewhere on the way. (laughs) Very easy for me to get lost. I'm not very good at following clues sometimes. In his gospel, John has done something similar by giving us a series of signs at certain key moments in the Jesus story. Each sign points us onwards to the next sign, until 
eventually when we've seen all the signs, the penny drops and we recognize the treasure, the treasure that is Jesus himself, who he really is, the word made flesh, the one who is the son of God, the one who is savior of mankind, the one who has come to usher in God's kingdom into the life of men and women. Tom Wright describes these signs as moments when heaven is opened, when the transforming power of God's love bursts into the present world. The first sign, we're told by John, came in John 2, 1 to 12, where Jesus turned water into wine, salvaging the reputation of the bride and bridegroom, transforming the water in the purification jars into wine of the very best quality. And the master of the banquet made this comment, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Do you know, it's always the best that is yet to come when Jesus is journeying with you through life. There's always better that lies ahead of us. And then John says, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So that's the first sign. And as we travel through the gospel of John, you will be able to see the next sign, which actually comes in the very passage that we read together in John chapter 4. John 4, 46 to 54. Here in this incident with the royal official's son, uh, the, the royal official's son, the, the, the love of God breaks through for a second time and a second sign is given to us so that we can uh, examine what our faith in Jesus is like. What kind of faith do we have in this Jesus? In, at Cana, in John chapter 2, the first sign, we're told his disciples put their faith in him. So the disciples believed, but what about all the others who were a witness to that particular miracle? Could they see what the miracle was saying? Could they understand about the wonderful transformation Jesus brings into the human heart and life, not through wine, but through the wine of the Holy Spirit. Apparently not. They didn't grasp what it was all about. And when Jesus returned from Galilee to Galilee from his time in Jerusalem and Samaria, we see that he's welcomed by the people uh, who lived in that area. And John says in verse 45, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. So they've been watching Jesus, and they've been a witness to everything that Jesus has been saying and doing. And their appetites have been whetted, and they're looking for more. And so when Jesus arrives back uh, to Cana, the crowds are there uh, surrounding him, eager for miracles, eager for Jesus to do something that would astound them. And in John 4, 48, Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, 
you will never believe. Their faith was not so much in the miracle worker as in the miracle itself. It wasn't so much in Jesus as in seeing the dramatic things that Jesus did. And unless they saw these signs and wonders, Jesus said, you will never believe. It appears at first glance that this comment is spoken by Jesus to the royal official who seeks him out for help. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. The son's desperate situation was the trigger to the father reaching out to Jesus and pleading with him for help. But I don't think that it was the royal official who was primarily the focus for that particular comment from Jesus. Perhaps he was tangentially, but it seems to me that it was really the crowd surging excitedly around Jesus to whom this was addressed. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And there's an element of exasperation in Jesus when he says this. You see, he recognized that the interest of the crowds was very superficial. It didn't go very deep within them. And... uh, And he knew that they were just looking for the experience of the moment rather than the transformation of a life. But John tells us that despite the superficial attitudes of the crowds, it didn't prevent Jesus from meeting the needs of this royal official. Verse 54 says this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee and it's a sign that challenges us about the quality of our faith in this Jesus is our faith merely superficial scratch beneath the surface and it disappears there's nothing there or is our faith a profound acknowledgement that Jesus is indeed the Word become flesh, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that Jesus indeed is the Savior of the world, and not just the Savior of the world, but the Savior, my Savior, my Savior. So as we look at the story, let's think first of all about the urgent plea of the official. Jesus has returned to the site of his first miraculous sign. He's in Cana. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. This man was a servant at the court of King Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, the king who had tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant by ordering the slaughter of all the male children under three in Bethlehem. We don't know the kind of influence that this royal servant might have had within the court of Herod Antipas. 
He obviously was in an influential situation. He obviously had a degree of power because he was a court official. But all of these things are as nothing when your son is lying desperately ill and dying. You could have the wealth of the universe. And if your child is dying and there's nothing you can do, what good is all that wealth? You could have the greatest influence over people and nations. But if your loved one is dying, what does that matter and what does that count? This man was taken up completely with his son's illness. He was distraught. And he had heard of Jesus. He heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee. Now, people everywhere were talking about this new prophet that came from Nazareth and all that he was saying and all that he was doing. And this royal official had heard of Jesus and knew a little bit about Jesus and in his extremity, he decided that he was going to leave his home in Capernaum and go up to Cana, and he was going to collar Jesus. He was going to get Jesus to come and heal his sick son. The distance between Capernaum and Cana was some 20 miles. Nothing at all for us in our motor cars, but for him it would mean a long journey on foot that would necessitate an overnight in a wayside inn. But he made that journey, and you can just imagine his anxiety as he pushed forward as fast as he could possibly go in order to get to Cana and to find Jesus. And when he met Jesus, John 4.49 tells us, the royal official said... Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, the tense of the verb that's used in the text here tells us this wasn't just a one-off request, but it was a continual, desperate imploring of Jesus to come with him back to his home in Capernaum and to heal his son. He, 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 he was, as, as it were, not allowing Jesus any alternative, but to come with him and to do something to help his sick son. And in the midst of all that anxiety, in the midst of all that desperation, what does Jesus say? Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, Brothers and sisters, that wasn't what the royal official wanted to hear from Jesus. Those weren't words that brought him any degree of comfort whatsoever. It was not a promising start. But you'll remember, you've been told many times, don't judge a book by its cover. So don't be quick to pass judgment on Jesus' response here. You see, if we turn to the scripture, we find other occasions when at first glance, Jesus does not appear to respond to people's need in an encouraging or sympathetic way. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Mark chapter 7 and verse 27. 
And in the passage there, you will find the story of a pagan Gentile woman who begs Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And his response apparently says that the need of the Jews is far greater than the need of any Gentile. First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Not what she was wanting to hear. And to be described as a dog, well, he was no better than all the other Jews who described Gentiles as dogs. But her response to Jesus is immediate. Yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And that feisty reply delights Jesus. He delights Jesus. You see, Jesus can be deliberately provocative in order to test the depths of our faith. He was deliberately provocative to the Gentile woman. And it brought out the depths of her faith. He was deliberately provocative to the royal official. And it, it revealed the depths of the, the royal official's faith. Sir, he says in verse 49 of John 4, Come down before my child dies. It's as if the official is saying to Jesus, I could argue the point with you, Jesus, but this isn't the moment for a theological debate or discussion. This is the time for action. Come on, let's get up and go. How often are your prayers and my prayers as urgent and desperate as that of the royal official. How strong his faith in Jesus was at this point, we can't tell. We really don't know. But his pleading with Jesus shows us he's not going to be satisfied with anything less than a positive response from Jesus. Is that the attitude we have in our prayer life? Are we like Jacob? If you remember the story of Jacob, he wrestled with God and said to him in Genesis 32, 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Do we keep holding on to God in prayer until God comes through and answers our need? So we see the urgent plea of the official. Secondly, we see the reassuring promise of the Savior. Now, Donald Carson, in his commentary on John's Gospel, makes this comment. The royal official is not interested in Christology or fulfilled prophecy or even in signs and wonders. He is interested in the well-being of his child. His urgent prayer for help wins the master's healing power. And he has a joy of hearing Jesus say to him in John 4.50, you may go, your son will live. Like we said, we don't know how strong or deep the servant's faith was, but we can surmise at this stage it's probably a 
feeble, frail, and faltering faith. But this reassuring promise from Jesus triggers an entirely different kind of response, an unexpected response from the official. Now, remember what he was. He was a court official. He was very familiar with the authoritative words and the authoritative tone of voice of a king dismissing his servant. He had been dismissed that way many times before. Now, before Jesus, he hears the authoritative words of a heavenly king dismissing him and sending him back home with the reassurance that his son would be healed and live. And the unexpected thing is that suddenly he realizes he does not need Jesus to come with him back to his home in Capernaum. He realizes Jesus can heal his son there and then, even though his son is 20 miles away. Jesus' response, first of all, was a prophetic word. Your son will live. It's not your son might live. It's your son will live. I wonder if the servant felt something deep within his being confirm within him that at that very moment, his son had been healed. The incarnate word gave him his word and he fully believed in that word. He took Jesus at his word and he started back on the long journey to Capernaum. His faith didn't happen because he saw a miracle the way the crowds around him wanted to see a miracle. His faith happened because he believed the prophetic word Jesus had spoken to him. Not just a prophetic word, but also a powerful word. You know, in Psalm 107, it's a wonderful psalm, and in verses 19 and 20, these words with which this official would be very familiar. Then they, there's a whole list of things, people in extreme, in extreme situations and their desperation. And they turn to the Lord, and the Lord hears them, and the Lord answers them. And Psalm 107, 19 and 20, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. And that was what Jesus did for the official son. He healed the servant's son at a distance and out of the sight of those who were merely interested in witnessing something spectacular. The power of Jesus to answer prayer and heal our sickness is not diminished because he's at a distance from us and we can't see him. His power is just the same today for you and for me. Dr. Bruce Milne 
has this encouraging comment in his commentary on John. It's a wonderful comment. He says, here we see the utter sufficiency of his grace for those at a distance as well as for those nearby, for those who do not seek it for themselves as well as for those who do, for the needs of the body as well as the needs of the spirit, for those who are young as well as for those who are mature. Christ is enough. And that official experienced the reality of that, that Jesus was enough, his word was enough, and as he trusted in that word, so he experienced the miracle and saw it for himself as he traveled back home and saw his son healed. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Don't think that you can ask Jesus for too much because he is able and eager to do immeasurably more to meet all our needs. So the urgent plea of the official and secondly, the reassuring promise of the Savior and thirdly and finally, the genuine faith of the official. He had the choice to believe and take Jesus at his word or not to believe and to continue pressing him to come with him to his home. But the fact that he believed reminds us that faith is a living thing that grows and develops as we trust in the Lord Jesus. John 4.50 says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And so we see the growth of faith. We've said it earlier in the message. We don't know what he actually believed about Jesus, but he knows enough about Jesus to reach out to him in his pain and anguish and ask for his health, his help. It was a faltering first step based on what he knew about Jesus. This morning, you might know, not know very much about Jesus. You may just have come to church, and really your knowledge of the Lord Jesus is very sketchy, something that goes back to your childhood perhaps, or to when you were at school. But now as an adult, you, you, know, you don't really know much about Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you know about Jesus. Faith grows when you trust him, even though you know very little about Jesus. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And we can take Jesus at his word. We can believe that everything he promises for us, he will fulfill. And we may not know a great deal about Jesus. We may want to know much, much more. And God can help us to know much, much more. But even the little we know is enough to bring faith to birth that we can reach out to him and he can respond to us. So he's on the way back to Capernaum and as he's approaching his home, servants uh, arrived and verse 52 says, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, 
they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. (laughs) My goodness. What a treasure he discovered at the end of the journey. The very moment Jesus said, your son will live, the son was healed. And so we see not only the growth of his faith, but the fruit of faith. Let me take you back again to Psalm 107, which I quoted earlier on, and to that passage in which all the various traumas that the people were going through were dealt with, and they cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard them and answered and saved them. And Psalm 107, verse 21 and 22 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. The fruit of the faith this man exercised was seen in his own family's life. It bore fruit in his family, shared the story about his encounter with Jesus in the very moment Jesus told him his son would live. And we're told in verse 53 of John 4, so he and all his household believed. This man's faltering faith in Jesus bore fruit within his own family. And they all came to faith. They all came to believe. But it doesn't, didn't just bear fruit in his family. It also bore fruit in his community. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 7 and verses 1 to 10. And there we read the story of a Roman centurion who's living in Capernaum, same place the royal official lives. And this Roman centurion has a valued servant and says he was sick and about to die. Same scenario as that of the royal official. The centurion heard of Jesus. How did this centurion hear of Jesus. I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that he heard of Jesus through this royal official of King Herod Antipas because both of them, centurion and royal official, moved in the same circles. They operated at the same level in society. And we're told that the centurion sent some Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. And in verse 6 of Luke 7, it says he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed What is that a mirror image of? 
It's a mirror image of the royal official who heard the word and who believed and who went home knowing he didn't need to have Jesus come with him. So the influence of the faith of this servant bore fruit not just in his family, but I believe it also bore fruit in the local community. Is your faith bearing fruit for God? Can you see evidence of that fruit within your own family? As people hear from you the wonderful things that Jesus has done in your life, how he's transformed you, how he's saved you from your sin, how he's filled you with his spirit, how he's given you life such as you've never experienced before. Is your faith bearing fruit in your family? And is your faith bearing fruit in your community as you share with your neighbours? as you share with your work colleagues, as you share with those you study beside, as you share with all your friends the marvelous things that Jesus has done in your life. You know, what Jesus has done in your life and mine, it's worth sharing. It needs to be shared so that others can come to faith in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful story. We thank you for all that it teaches us about faith. Help us, Heavenly Father, to have a faith that is profound, not a faith that's superficial, a faith in Jesus, the word made flesh, faith in Jesus, your son revealed to us a faith in Jesus, the savior of the world, but more importantly, my savior, my friend. Help us, Heavenly Father, to share our faith and live out our faith so that others might come to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.